I was told the other day that the number one restaurant in the entire world, according to TripAdvisor, is in Yorkshire. Do you know that? Okay, the, the top restaurant in the entire world of TripAdvisor uh, is found just up north of York uh, in a little village there. It's quite impressive, isn't it? To be number one of all restaurants across the entire globe. Uh, it's quite pricey if you think about going. Set you back 100-odd quid just for one person. Uh, so I doubt many of us will be there too soon. But it'd be a huge thing, wouldn't it? To, if, imagine someone invited you to go there. Okay, a rich aunt or grandparent or something took you there to sit and eat at the finest restaurant in the world. What a privilege. I think of those who, is it two weeks ago now, a week, two weeks ago, I'm lost already, who sat down at Windsor uh, with Prince Harry uh, and Meghan and ate at the wedding banquet. Again, what a privilege to have that kind of invitation to eat in the presence of royalty. There's something about eating with people, isn't there, that, that binds you together. Think of those who've sat at your kitchen table, your dining room table, over the last week or month. They're friends, aren't they? They're people you like. Time and again throughout the Bible, we find that uh, if two people, or even more significantly, as we'll see today, if God and people are binding themselves together in in what's called a covenant relationship, a sort of binding friendship, then that's sealed with a meal. Eating together brings fellowship, closeness. And this offering, this peace offering, uh, is essentially just that. It is a meal shared between God and his people. Uh, As we read through, I I don't know how we've had two weeks off, um, Leviticus, so you might be a little bit out of sync with what we've done so far. But but as we read through, you might have noticed that the start of the, the, the offering, the start of the chapter, reads like, well, Frankly, the first of the offerings, the ascension offerings you read about in chapter 1, that the offerer brings the animal, lays his hands on the head, and then sacrifices it. The blood's poured out on the altar. But from then onwards, it changes. Uh, from then onwards, this offering is unlike any of the other offerings in the book of Leviticus, because this offering is eaten by the worshipper, eaten by the one who brings it. Some goes on the altar, as we'll see, and is burnt, given to God. Some is eaten by the priest. But the vast majority is eaten by the man or woman who brings the peace offering. So I want to think a little bit about what it is teaching us. What what does the name peace offering mean? Why why is this offering there? And then a little bit about why, why, why they have to eat it. What's going on with eating? And then finally we'll think about how Christ transforms this offering. But let's get the basics in place first. What is this? What is this peace offering? Well, the name kind of gives it away, doesn't it? Uh, This offering is a sign of the peace that exists between God and his people. I've said before that it's really important with these offerings in Leviticus, these sacrifices, that we get them in the right order. Uh, You you couldn't just sort of bring them willy-nilly. This offering, this peace offering, uh, is deliberately the third of the offerings we've been introduced to. There's nothing in this offering, you'll see, uh, in in the whole of chapter 3, there's nothing in this passage that talks about the offering paying for our sins or providing forgiveness. Uh, There's nothing about atonement or cleansing. In fact, we're not told the offering does anything much at all. It is simply just called the peace offering. Uh, The way the chapter works, you might have noticed if you read it, is, is essentially it's pretty repetitive. 
Uh, it starts off in verses 1 to 5 saying, this is what you do with a peace offering if it's from the herd, so if it's a cow. Uh, secondly, in verses uh, 6 to 11, we're told what to do if it's an animal from the flock, a sheep. And then finally, in verses 12 through 17, we're told what to do if it's a goat. But it's the same thing, more or less, every time. Whether it's a cow, whether it's a sheep, whether it's a goat, you do the same thing. You sacrifice it, the blood is poured out. Uh, verse 3, the fat, that's the best bits, go on the altar. And they're a food offering to God. And the rest of it we read in chapter 7. Apart from the, the breast and the thigh, which is given to the priest, the rest of it are given back to the worshipper to eat. So what's going on? Uh, you remember in chapter 1, the first offering we looked at was called the Ascension Offering. Uh, you can remember the Leviticus Offering, chapter 1, 2, 3, A, B, C. In chapter 1, the Ascension Offering was all about ascending to God through atonement going up into God's presence through the atoning sacrifice. That first offering was the one that paid for our sins. So that's the first thing that, that happened when you came to worship. Your sin was paid for. We saw in chapter 2, the grain offering, that was the bring a gift offering. So ascend to God through atonement, A. B was bring a gift. That's when you brought just a, a gift to God. And here in chapter 3, well, here's the, the results of that fellowship. This is the come and eat offering, if you like. There's your C, come and eat. It's saying not so much how you get right with God, but what happens when you are right with God. Once atonement has been made for you, what do we find? We find peace. And that is the promise of the gospel all the way through the Bible. God promises that if someone dies in your place, and ultimately, as we saw when we looked earlier at Leviticus 1, ultimately when Christ dies in your place, the result is peace between God and man. That might not sound particularly remarkable to us, because naturally we tend to think of ourselves as people who are, well, probably in God's good books anyway. Perhaps you're not a Christian. And, and you just think, well, if there is a God there, then, then surely he's going to be pretty pleased with me, more or less, anyway. I'm not that bad. I can think of so many people in the world, and so many people in history, who are much worse than I am. But actually, the way the Bible speaks, the way Jesus speaks, the way God speaks through his prophets in the Bible is that naturally we are enemies of God. It uses that word, enemies. It's striking, isn't it? I, I can't think of many people who I would think of as my enemy. I can't think of anyone I would think of as my enemy. There might be people out there who would think of me as their enemy, I don't know. But it's an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Wouldn't you be disturbed to hear that someone thought of you as their enemy? Actually, that's what the Bible says. We are naturally If you are a Christian, if, 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 if the gospel has become sort of cold to you, just a bit dull, then quite likely it's because you've forgotten how serious a state you were in before you were rescued. If you think of yourself as someone who just needed a bit of first aid from Jesus, a little bit of patching up, then you're unlikely to be particularly grateful to him. If you cut your feeling, finger in the kitchen and, you know, you're wife or husband passes your class, that you, you're not hugely grateful to them for the rest of your life, are you? If you get knocked over by a car and the ambulance men come and rescue you, paramedics, you know, pump blood into you, get your heart beating again, you're over the moon. You were heading to death and you've been rescued. But I'm just really clear that naturally we are enemies. We are not at peace with God. And it's only through Christ dying for us that peace comes. 
But it's equally clear that once we have put our trust in God, we really do have peace. It is full and final. There's nothing else we need to do to top it up. There's nothing lacking or missing in that atoning sacrifice that Jesus makes for us. God is delighted in this and wants our friendship, wants our fellowship. And so much so that he actually sits and eats with us. And that's why this is the last of the offerings in terms of the order they will be brought. It was a sign that God really was friends with his people. They were sitting down and eating together. That's why it was the story of the Bible goes on. It was such a striking thing that Jesus sat and ate with sinners. Uh, time and time and again in the Gospels, you find Jesus at a dinner party, or Jesus in someone's house, or Jesus feeding people in the wilderness. Think of the feeding of the 5,000. The reason Jesus ate so often with sinners was to show us that that's what he'd come to do, to bring people back into his family, that they might be friends, they might be at peace with God. Uh, this offering, coming as it does at the end, if you like, of the, the worship service, if you can call it that, in the Old Testament, was a sign that all was at peace between God and man. But, but it still begs the question, why? Why a meal? Okay, why not just have the priest, after you've done your, you know, you've sacrificed your goat and the blood's been poured out and you've had your uh, atoning sacrifice, okay, from Leviticus 1, why not just have the priest say, and now you're at peace with God? Go home. Your sins are forgiven. All is cleared. Why not just hear those words? Why have a meal? Why have another sacrifice all about eating? Why add anything, we might say, to the preaching of the gospel? Two reasons. Uh, God gives this peace offering, as we'll see, gives us a meal too. Uh, The first is a physical sign. It's a physical sign. When you have a big event in life, uh, you often celebrate with a meal as well, don't you? So uh, you get married, uh, and after the wedding ceremony, typically you sit down and have a big meal together. You celebrate Christmas, and what happens? Well, lunchtime, you roast a turkey or a goose or whatever, sit down and have a meal together. Eating, as we said, expresses fellowship. Uh, that's why in verses 3 and 4, the fat uh, all that stuff about the entrails, the kidneys. It sounds disgusting to us, doesn't it? The kidneys, the liver, the lobe, the fat. The idea is that's the best bit, the tastiest bit of the meat. So the tastiest bit of the animal gets given to God and is burnt up. Uh, and is a pleasing aroma, verse 5, to the Lord. But the rest is given to you to eat, the worshipper. That is, God gives you a physical sign. He gives you food to confirm that you are at peace with him. In many ways, what's going on in this offering, this peace offering, is exactly the same that goes, what goes on with the Lord's table. When we're given bread and wine. Remember on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus wanted to to, to tell his church how to remember his death from now onwards, how to remember the gospel, he chose a physical picture. He didn't just say to the disciples, keep telling people the gospel. He didn't say to them, just keep teaching the Bible. He gave them a physical sign, bread and wine. He gave them a physical sign because we are physical people. He gave them a physical sign, this meal that we eat, 
taste and smell to strengthen our faith in the fact that we are at peace with God. Just flick on with me to, to the book of Luke. Okay, it's an extraordinary story right at the end of Luke's Gospel. Luke 24, which is the last chapter of Luke's Gospel. Uh, it's page 885 in the Church Bibles. And we're at the resurrection. Okay, we're after the resurrection, rather. Jesus died, he's risen again. And well, he's begun appearing to the disciples. Different times, different places. Uh, look down to verse 13. Uh, on that very day, two of them, that's two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Okay, they don't realise Jesus has risen from the dead. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. Okay, so Jesus appears to the two disciples, but they don't know who he is, and they're walking along. And so he says to them, what are you talking about, verse 17? And they say, the only one, you're the only one who doesn't know what's happened. Jesus of Nazareth, he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah, but then he was killed. And so what does he do? Look down to verse 25. After their big speech about how it's all gone wrong, verse 25, he says this. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, sorry, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, so far, so good and evangelical of Jesus. Okay? They still don't know who he is. But Jesus is doing just what we as conservative evangelicals think he ought to do. Okay, they're confused. They don't understand why Jesus has died. They think it's all gone wrong. So beginning with Moses. Okay, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So beginning with books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He explained to them how he had to die. And then rise again. Enter into his glory. So he gives them a Bible study. He teaches them. He preaches to them. He does a one-to-one. Well, not a one-to-one. It's a one-to-two, isn't it? As he walks along with the road with them, this Emmaus Bible study, as it's come to be known. All the Old Testament, Jesus says, is about me, about how I had to die for sins, how I had to, I had to rise again. And I suspect Leviticus 1 would have been in there, that ascension offering, that atonement offering, the paying for your sins offering. But they still don't know who he is. And it's fascinating how Luke goes on. Look down to verse 28. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, now just hear this verse, and what does it remind you of? He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognised him. And he vanished from their sight. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to him. And then they recognised him. That those words in that order, took, blessed, broke, gave it to them. It's exactly what Jesus has done a few days earlier at the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper. The Passover meal before he went to the cross. Where he'd taken the bread given thanks, blessed it, broken it, and then given it to the disciples. And it's then that they recognise him. So Jesus reveals himself to the disciples through both teaching of the word, 
but also through this breaking of bread, or through this meal, this physical meal. It's fascinating that happens, verse 13, that very day. And if we're wondering what that very day was, we'll look back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 24, verse 1. It's on the first day of the week. So there it is on the Sunday. And the first day of the week, Jesus comes and, comes and preaches to the disciples to strengthen their faith so they'll really believe who he is. And he breaks bread with them. And that is when they recognise him. The reason that God gives us a peace offering is to strengthen our faith in the gospel, to strengthen our faith in Christ. If the ascension offering, Leviticus 1, that, that burnt offering as it's sometimes called, the dying for sin offering, points forward to Christ, then the peace offering we're looking at today, in many ways, points forward to the Lord's Supper. Okay, the Lord's Supper, if you like, is a, is a bit like a New Testament version of that peace offering. And in the same way, it's given to reassure us that we are at peace with God. It's given in addition to the preaching, the teaching of God's word. Uh, it's given as a physical sign because we're physical people. Uh, we need bread to sustain us, don't we, in normal life? We need food to sustain our physical life. Well, God gives us spiritual food in the Lord's Supper to sustain our spiritual life. Uh, why bother giving something physical? What does it do extra? What do you get when you get the Lord's Supper that you don't get when you get the preach of the gospel? Well, one says nothing new. It's just Christ that's been given to us. But, but there's something about being physical that, that just gets to us in a different way. So you know, I've got three little daughters. One of my little daughters runs up to me uh, and I pick her up and say, I, I love you, and I give her a kiss. What is the kiss doing? What's the kiss communicating to her? It means I love her, doesn't it? So you can say, well, why are you bothering kissing her? Why bother kissing your children? Just tell them you love them. Just, just preach to them. They just need words. Well, no, there's something about picking them up and cuddling them and giving them a kiss that it, it's not really new information, is it? It's just the same information in a different way. It's confirming. It's, it's hard to say exactly what it is, but it is strengthening their faith that their dad loves them. That's going, what's going on in all these meal offerings. Because we are physical people, God speaks to us, not just through our ears, that's the primary way, through the teaching of the Bible, but also through our, our eyes, our noses, our mouths as we eat and ultimately drink. So it's a physical sign, and it's also a personal sign. It's in your hands that you hold the bread and the cup. If you like, it personalises the gospel. It's not just preached in general out there, whoosh, to everybody. But you hold in your hands uh, the symbol, the sign of Christ broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. At the Lord's Supper, a peace offering is to give you assurance, to strengthen our faith. That we are really at peace with God. Uh, incidentally, it also means that, or also should remind us that we are therefore at peace with one another too. I read the other day that in, in some days gone by when men still wore swords, uh, that in, in one city in particular, when they came forward for the Lord's Supper, uh, so uh, often in, in other churches you'd come to the front to gather around the table and you'd eat there, uh, before you came forward all the men had to take their swords off and leave them on their chair as a sign that they're now at peace with one another. Now we're not, I imagine, I hope, many of us carrying weapons, okay? But symbolically, as we eat the sign that says we're at peace with God, 
We're also reminded we're therefore at peace with one another. That's why often when we come to the Lord's table, we say something like, don't take the bread and the wine if you're not prepared to show the same grace and forgiveness to one another that God has shown to you. It'd just be hypocritical, wouldn't it? Say, yes, I want your forgiveness, Lord. I want mercy. I want your grace. But I will not forgive my wife for what she said last night. It's hugely hypocritical. So, so this meal is meant to both strengthen our faith in God, to confirm how much he loves us physically to us, but also that same grace should sort of flow out to one another. But before we finish, there's something more. It is not simply a physical and personal sign. Uh, it is not, if you like, simply a visual aid to us. Uh, God also uses these physical elements, the bread and the wine, spiritually to feed us, to nourish us. Uh, do you notice uh, in Leviticus uh, that there's one very clear command about what you cannot eat? You mustn't eat the fat or the blood. And particularly the blood is a huge theme in Leviticus. We're told time and time again, you must not eat the blood. You must not eat blood, must not eat blood, must not eat blood. Uh, why? Well, Leviticus 17 tells us that it's because the life of a creature is in its blood. Now, it's not giving us a biology lesson, but a spiritual lesson. Blood symbolizes life. And you mustn't eat the blood of the creature that's been sacrificed, the animal uh, that has died in your place. No blood, no blood, no blood. All the way through the Old Testament. And then Jesus turns up and says exactly the opposite. Just listen to these words. They might be words you've heard before, but, but just, just try and hear how shocking they would be when you were hearing them preach for the first time. Okay, imagine a wandering preacher comes to your village and says this. Okay, this is Jesus. Uh, in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What kind of preaching is that? If you want eternal life... You must feed on my flesh and drink my blood. An extraordinary thing to say. And doubly extraordinary, given that he's preaching to Jews who know that you must not on any account eat anybody's blood. You can't even eat a goat's blood, an animal's blood, no sausages, no black pudding. And now Jesus is saying, you must drink my blood. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, they think he's mad. They say, how could this man give us flesh to eat? But he is adamant. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides, lives, dwells in me, and I in him. It's a bizarre sermon, is it not? And yet it's the words of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. If you want eternal life, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. In our early days uh, in the church, one of the accusations against Christians was that they were cannibals. Okay, some of the Roman governors, they heard this stuff going on. They heard that Christians drank the blood of Christ and ate his flesh, and genuinely thought they were cannibals. It's one of the reasons they tried to ban uh, the Christian meetings. But of course, Jesus doesn't mean 
literally kind of chew on his flesh and drink his blood. In fact, he explains in that very chapter that ultimately it's about believing in him. Uh, He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So ultimately you are saved not by some mystical eating of Jesus, but by believing in him. And yet the picture is still there of eating and drinking. If you want eternal life, his blood must flow into you. The life of the creature is in the blood. The life of Christ is in his blood. We must somehow feed on his blood and his body. And that's why we read that passage from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is explaining that although the food, the bread, the wine is still bread and wine, it's physical stuff, it is, as he says, a participation in the blood of Christ. Or a communion in the blood of Christ in some chapters, in some versions, sorry. In fact, he even says that Speaking of the, the Israelites eating at the altar, that they were those who, let me read from verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Earlier on in the chapter, he said that as they ate the bread in the wilderness, for example, the manna, or drank from the rock, remember the water from the rock that came miraculously? He's even said that that was spiritual food and spiritual drink. He goes on to say that the rock was Christ. They are eating and drinking Christ. It's the same sort of language as John 6. The idea is that we share the Lord's Supper. It's not simply a reminder that God loves us. It's not simply a reminder that Jesus died for us, his body broken, his blood shed. But somehow, mysteriously, through the Holy Spirit, it is a feeding on Christ, a strengthening. That means that when we serve the Lord's Supper, it is not primarily about us trying to remember on our own really, really hard that Jesus died for me. It's not when you hold the bread and the wine that you're meant to just on your own think really, really hard, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for me. It's not ultimately, it's not first and foremost about something we do at all, in fact. It's about God doing something for us, feeding us. How? I I don't really know. No one really knows how it works. God uses physical things to strengthen us. A bit like when we're taught the Bible, God uses airwaves to hit your eardrums and it sort of wobbles through the air and somehow that does you good. A bit like the first time you became a Christian, someone spoke to you the gospel or perhaps you read and light came into your eyes and hit the retinas and all that sort of stuff and somehow that did you spiritual good. It transformed you from death to life. Well, so when you eat and drink, when you receive those, those just physical elements... By faith, God does us good. He strengthens us. It is a gift of grace. The peace offering, uh, and ultimately the Lord's Supper, is not simply a physical sign. It's not a visual aid alone, although it is that. It is a means God uses to strengthen us. That's why we serve it every week. Uh, It's why it's a... A key part of any service. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, in Acts 20, uh, Luke says that we gather together on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. That's what he calls the, sh- the service. Okay? His shorthand for our meeting together as a church, he calls the breaking of bread. It's almost as if you can use communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, as a shorthand title for the whole of what you do on a Sunday morning. We'd say, surely we met together for the preaching of the word, or we, we met together for the 
prayers, or we met together for the study of the Bible, but Luke says, for the breaking of the bread. As if that is the high point. Because that's the point we eat and drink with God. And all of this, this little tiny meal that we have, a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine, is just pointing us forward uh, to the final feast that ends the Bible. And Revelation 19, uh, we get a little glimpse of where everything is going. Uh, And where are we headed towards? We're headed towards a meal. We're headed towards a banquet. Uh, We're heading towards what Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, The picture is of a huge banquet in heaven when finally all God's people sit down with him. Uh, And Christ, our Lord, is there and he feeds us and we rejoice and the feast never ends. Your destiny, if you're a Christian, is to find eternal and final and full peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace with creation. Everything at rest and in its place. And the Lord's Supper is a little foretaste, a little promise of what's to come. But what's to come is vastly greater than we can possibly imagine. Let me end by reading a little bit. Uh, from Jonathan Edwards, speaking about that American uh, minister of some two, three hundred years ago, he said this, speaking of that last wedding day, he said this, the wedding day is that last day, or rather that will be the beginning of it. The wedding feast is eternal, and the love and the joys, the songs, the entertainments, and the glories of the wedding will never be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day. Those of you who are married will probably think of your wedding day as the greatest day of your life. Jonathan Edwards says, you're headed towards an eternal wedding feast that will never end. That will put any human wedding you've been to completely in the shade. The glories, the songs, the joys, the love, the entertainments of that wedding day will never be ended. It is an everlasting wedding day. That is where you're headed. And that is what the Lord's Supper and the peace offering preach to us. Peace with God, peace with one another, and eternal joy in his presence.